Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Billing Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hello, my dear listeners. How are you? Welcome to episode 12 of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. on this blistering, corona-raging summer day. Be honest, when you think of a country music-loving Republican man, chances are you picture a white male. But our guest today not only breaks outdated stereotypes, but also broke with the Republican Party and became a Democrat. I am talking about Project Lincoln senior advisor Kurt Bardella. Bardella is a former congressional spokesman who is an MSNBC contributor to Morning Joe. He's also a contributing writer for USA Today and the creator and publisher of the country music industry publication, Morning Hangover. And he joins us today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show. Hello. How's it going? So you are such an interesting person, Kurt, an Asian-American Republican turned Democrat who writes about country music. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, upstate New York in Rochester. It's where I spent my childhood. And then when I was 10, we moved to San Diego, California, where I spent most of my time until I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2006 and have been in, in D.C. ever since then. So you just joined the Lincoln Project, which is just on fire right now. Tell me more about your role as senior advisor to the group. My focus is on kind of my background of communications and messaging and rapid response. And the great thing about the Lincoln Project that really appealed to me is it truly is a collaborative organization. It is one that fosters teamwork. And I tell you, it's such an interesting time because we're in this period of social distancing. And so where normally you would have a central congregating office and place where everybody would be at day in and day out. And this time, everyone has to do it remotely and digitally. And the fact that they've been able to create such a positive work culture really speaks to the type of leadership that goes on internally. Aside from the fact that obviously from a philosophical standpoint, the aligning of bringing together as many different voices as possible who share the same goal of wanting to defeat President Trump. This is, in my opinion, an all-hands-on-deck election. If you can make a difference, if you can help, you should. And for me, this just wasn't one of those times where I wanted to just stay on the sidelines. You know, It would have been very easy and comfortable for me to just stay as a commentator and doing the things that I do on places like MSNBC and writing for places like USA Today. But I wanted to try to be as helpful as I could be in this effort. And I was very fortunate that the Lincoln Project was willing to also bring me on board. 
I mean, their ads are just Oscar-worthy. They are just these mesmerizing, powerful, amazing ads. You recently wrote that the Lincoln Project is not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about the truth. But the Lincoln Project is made up of Republicans who want Trump out. Right. And I think it's interesting because this is one of the only times in my lifetime where what's at stake in this election so far transcends where you sit on the ideological spectrum. It's not about the issues that we normally debate about, whether it's pro-life and pro-choice or for gun control or not, or how you want to spend taxpayer dollars or whether you think that we need more tax cuts and more government spending. The things that elections oftentimes focus on, in this case, they're all kind of put on the sideline because something much bigger is at stake here. And I think that Vice President Biden said it best when he talked about the soul of our nation is what we're determining in November. And more than that, truth is really, to me, what's at stake right now. When you have someone like the White House press secretary who said from the podium that let's not let science get in the way of reopening classrooms, what in the world does that even mean? And what kind of world are we living in when that's the mentality from the people who are supposed to be in charge of our government? And so with the Lincoln Project, you have a group of people who have made it very clear that this isn't about being a policy think tank driving public policy narratives and debates. This is about litigating truth and fact and demonstrating how this president and his enablers are completely devoid of reality. Something that always shocks people about me is that I like country music. (laughs) I mean, I went to UVA. But tell me about your love of country music, because people that look like us usually aren't what country music fans look like. How did this passion start? Because It's a real passion of yours, right? It is. I've been a fan of country music for a long time now. And and it started like, I think a lot of people's experience with music. I I had the opportunity to go to a live concert and it was Jason Aldean and Eric Church in 2010. And I just fell in love with it. The energy, the authenticity, the just connectivity of it, it really spoke to me. And I started going to shows all the time. I mean, that really became my favorite hobby was going to country music concerts. And then a few years ago, I had this idea for a daily morning email tip sheet about country music. Things like what artists played on the Today Show, who's putting on a new album, who just released a new music video, who's going on tour. And I thought it would be so neat to have just a quick two-minute read every day to start your day to know what happened in Nashville in the last 24 hours. And much to my shock, this passion project, this hobby caught on in Nashville and on Music Row, and it's become the most widely read publication in Nashville. I've had the good fortune of getting to know a number of country music artists and become friends with a few of them. And up until this recent year, you know, I'd spend most of my time going to shows and spending time with these artists, and it's been the most fun of my professional life. Tell me about some of your favorite artists. I mean, I like the Dixie Chicks, Garth Brooks, but you are a country music expert. What are some of your all-time favorite songs? My favorite artist is Eric Church. He's the reason why I became a fan of country music in the first place. I think the song that he put out a few years ago called Springsteen is probably my favorite song of the decade, honestly. It talks about how you connect music and melodies and memories, and that song to me is what music is all about. And it was also an incredible success for Eric. I'm a huge fan and supporter of guys like Brad Paisley and Tim McGraw, who have been around for two decades now, but continue to put out great music. And and even in this time of Corona, Brad just put out this great song called No I Am Beer, 
that while on the surface sounds like just a good old-fashioned drinking song is really about it speaks to the time that we're in right now that we're all in this together drinking ought to be a team effort there's no i am beer i cannot wait for everyone to see the music video for this because it is the yearbook of 2020 in my opinion if i could put this music video in a time capsule so people 50 years 100 years from now can know what it was like in 2020 this music video would be the one wow have you ever thought about just doing publicity for the entire country music industry I try to be an advocate for the community that they've been so gracious and welcoming of me to. Again, it's like I'm a fan first, and I try to keep that true. Country music gets such a bad rap, and people are so dismissive of it. But if you listen to the lyrics, they're stories. The songs always have this real deep meaning. They are. That's the thing. I think people who dismiss country music, fundamentally, they think of it as Billy Ray Cyrus' Achy Breaky Heart. And well, there's nothing wrong with that. The genre is so much more than that. And you look at some of Tim's biggest songs, you know, Live Like You Were Dying, one of the greatest songs of all time, in my opinion. Another song, he had Humble and Kind, which really, again, from a societal perspective, you know, really speaks to some of the struggles that we're having right now in 2020. You know, country music is, to me, a reflection of the human condition. And for whatever mood you're in and whatever you're going through, there is a song that matches that. Whether you're in love, whether you're out of love, whether you're dealing with losing your job, whether you live in a small town, there's so many songs that deal with very, very big social issues. You know, in the wake of the Las Vegas tragedy at Route 91, the biggest mass shooting in the history of our country, Marin Morris and Vince Gill put out a song called Dear Hate. Eric Church, who I talked about earlier, has a song called Kill a Word that talks about how if he could replace words like hate and fear with love and hope. Luke Bryan, one of the most successful artists in country, judge on American Idol, you know, has a lyric in a song called Most People Are Good that says, I believe you love who you love and this I think you should ever be ashamed of, talking about gay marriage. Wherever you fall in music tastes, there's something for you. If you are more pop-centric, go listen to Thomas Rhett and Mary Morris. If you're more of a rock guy, Go listen to Jason Aldean. If you're more of a traditional country Alan Jackson type, go listen to some John Party. There is no shortage of places to go to. And country music is one of the most collaborative genres, period. It's some of the biggest songs in all of music in the last three or four years. Marin Morris teaming up with Zed doing the summer hit The Middle. B.B. Rexa, Florida, Florida George Line doing the song Meant to Be, one of the biggest songs ever. Lil Nas X, Billy Ray Cyrus, Old Tom, literally the... You know, yeah. spent the most weeks at number one of any song in history. There's something for everyone. And people would not think that, right? They would not describe country music as collaborative or diverse. It looks so white on the outside. But I want to know, what did you think of Beyonce's performance a few years ago at the Country Music Awards? It was so shocking for so many to see a black woman on that stage. I was there in the arena at the CMAs. It was nothing short of electrifying, honestly. And I know that Country music is thought of as a white format, and, and there's some truth to that. But we're seeing changes happening now. One of my good buddies, Jimmy Allen, came out of the gate with two number one records, just put out an album last week that is, I think, a fantastic project, and it's totally collaborative, and it's got songs with him, Tim McGraw, him and Brad Paisley, him and Darius Rucker. Kane Brown just put out a song with Khalid that's amazing. And I think about those moments where Beyonce took the stage. I think there were a lot of people who were wondering, what would that be like? How would that play in the room? And it was just a great moment. I mean, the thing about everybody in this format, they're all fans of talent and music and stories. And I think everybody acknowledges it doesn't get any bigger or better than Beyonce. And especially 
from the format that gave you Taylor Swift, we are very welcoming of having artists from all genres participate. I remember at another award show, Kenny Chesney and Pink doing a song together. That was amazing. I think my favorite moment that I got to experience live was seeing Justin Timberlake and Chris Stapleton perform together. I mean, that was an energy that was tangible. It's a lot of fun. And where else really could I get those type of experiences? You know, yeah. I feel so fortunate that I get to be a part of that. So you married well, like really, really well. And that is something I know by never even having met your wife. But I follow her on Twitter. And since the pandemic, she's become a real pro setting up your live shots on MSNBC. And your live shots always look so good. And she's been setting you up. Talk to me about your wife. How did the two of you meet? You know, we met at a mutual friend's wedding. Actually, uh, we both live in D.C., but we met at in Sonoma. And she went to high school with one of my former co-workers. And we were completely off. I mean, the funny thing is, I remember the first time I ever saw her, and I talked to my friend. I said, hey, what's the story with that girl? And she said, don't even bother. She's not your type. It would never work. And it's so funny now, looking back on it, that, of course, here we are, you know, these many, many years later. Did you invite that friend to your wedding? We eloped. We did not want to have the show, as they say. Uh, we wanted to just do our thing. We got married in Monterey and then spent the day at the aquarium there hanging out with some sea otters. And we wanted our time and energy to be spent really at the honeymoon. And so we spent three weeks in uh, Thailand and Bali. When it comes to wedding, people can do what makes them happy, and they should. For us, this was just about her and I. And how many times in life can you get away for three weeks to do anything, right? So we wanted to spend our resources and time having the best honeymoon possible. And we did. What's going to happen in November, Kurt? Is Trump going to come back? Are we going to survive? Or will we die from the bubonic plague that a squirrel in Colorado just tested positive for? You know, I think, unfortunately, things will get worse before they get better. When you have an administration that continues to ignore fact and science, who even goes to the lengths of trying to attack and undermine their own experts, and especially what they're doing to Dr. Fauci, trying to reopen schools, even the idea of holding a political convention where a few thousand people are going to go to Florida, which is one of the biggest hotspots of coronavirus in our country, none of that makes any sense. We have seen for four years now that this is a president who is devoid of reality, who is so self-obsessed that he is incapable of stepping outside himself and doing what he needs to do to try to ease the pain and suffering that our nation is collectively experiencing. And really the only respite that we have is the prospect of voting him out on November 3rd. And so I think it's going to be closer than it is now. I think that inevitably you'll see a cycle where Things get tightened up and people start running with, well, Trump, Trump, he's bounced back. He's the comeback kid. Uh, he could pull this off. And everyone is so, I think, traumatized by what happened in 2016 that they're afraid to outright say that Biden is the front runner, that Biden is going to win, that it could be a blowout. People are just kind of holding their breath and hoping those things happen, but they're not going to say it. And in campaigns, in my experience in politics, you run like you're 10 points behind. You spend every waking moment as if you're going to lose. And then hopefully the outcome goes your way on Election Day. But I do think that we are at an inflection point in this country. Mm. I think that this election is so very different than 2016. People compare it all the time, and I think it's a false comparison to make. Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is no longer a theoretical, oh, what would happen if we elected Donald Trump? That's, that illusion is gone. We know what Donald Trump is. And I think that the people of this country are just ready to change the channel and turn the page. And I think that they will.
Whatever your politics or taste in music, my dear listeners, there are a few things that we should all be able to agree on at this point. Face masks help slow the spread of coronavirus, and this November, you better vote like your life depends on it, because it does. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in, everybody. Don't forget to follow Spilling Chai Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Leave us a review, subscribe. Everything helps so much. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. 